0: Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. I am Dawn Davenport. I'm the host of this show, but I'm also the executive director at Creating a Family. You can find all of our resources, and we have lots of resources on this topic, and you can find them at our website, creatingafamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking about the impact of opiates, methadone, suboxone, and other common drugs, prenatal exposure with the impact of these drugs on fetuses and later on children. Uh, We're going to be talking with Dr. Julian Davies, he is a pediatrician at the University of Washington's Center for Adoption Medicine and their FASD and Prenatal Exposure Clinic. Welcome Dr. Davies to Creating a Family.
1: Hello, it's nice to be back.
0: All right, let's start. We're going to be focusing today primarily on opiates, methadone, and suboxone, but we're going to touch on other common drugs for, we'll we'll talk about the reason we're going to touch on other drugs as well. But let's start by talking about what are opiates, both what are their street names and, and what are the legal and illegal opiates that we might know.
1: You bet. Um, and there's actually, um, you know, t- two different terms that get used sometimes interchangeably with this topic, though, although they're a little bit different. So the opiates generally re- refer to the natural opioids, ones that are derived from natural products like heroin or morphine or codeine. Those are opiates. And then opioids is the broader category. And that's You'll see that in use more now because it pulls in the semi-synthetic and synthetic opioids that uh, like fentanyl and um, buprenorphine and things like that. So the the kind of umbrella term is opioids and then opiates are some of the substances under that.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you made that distinction because it is not always clear uh, the difference. Okay, so what are some of those and how would we, what are some of the names that we would have heard them?
1: Sure. I mean, certainly you've heard of kind of street drugs such as heroin and uh, certainly prescription pain relievers can be used or, you know, misused, you know, an oxycodone, hydrocodone, codeine, uh, morphine. You've heard about some of the more powerful synthetic opioids like fentanyl. Um, And then there's also the kind of prescription uh, drugs used for uh, opioid maintenance therapies. And that'd be like methadone and buprenorphine, sometimes known as Suboxone or Subutex.
0: Yeah, they're used for, for more for treatments. Okay, and we'll talk about that right. in a minute. Okay, yeah. so and and all of these are the more common opioids that would be used during pregnancy then. Or do you see right. some being used more than others?
1: No. I mean, we, we see the mix. Um, there's definitely been a, a rise in the uh, sort of misuse of prescription pain relievers, and that's contributed a lot to the dramatic increases in the rates of opioid exposures during pregnancy and neonatal abstinence syndrome.
0: Okay. So now let's talk about non opiate or non-opioid drugs that are being used by pregnant women. What are some of the more common ones that you see? From women using during pregnancy that are impacting their fetuses and, and children?
1: Yeah, you bet. So, the general category of substance use during pregnancy includes things that could be legal, right? So, tobacco or nicotine products, alcohol, in some states, including mine, cannabis products, THC, and so on. So, legal for, for some. Um, mm-hmm. Then there's their prescription drugs use and also misuse, right? And we've talked about the opioids and painkillers, but also sed- sedatives, stimulants, psychiatric medications. Those can be things that uh, fetuses are exposed to. And then you've got your generally illegal drugs, um, illegal use of stimulants such as cocaine, amphetamines, methamphetamines, ecstasy or MDMA, hallucinogens, and in some states, the cannabis products. Okay. That's- and there's other more obscure ones, but those are the ones that we, you know, we see. Yeah, the,
0: the more common ones, right? Okay, yeah. so what are the common treatment medications or drugs that are given to those struggling with addiction, addiction to uh, opioids, who are right. and they're trying to get off the opioids?
1: Sure. So the one that folks are probably quite familiar with is methadone, right? That was one of the original prescription medications used to treat um, opioid use disorder. And methadone is what's called a schedule two controlled substance. So it's just harder to access, right? It's only certain centers can prescribe it. There's a certain amount of monitoring and, and we'll talk about some potential disadvantages when it comes to its use in pregnancy what I think folks will encounter a lot more uh, uh, these days are the medications that are based on buprenorphine. And buprenorphine by itself is called Subutex, the brand name, but also folks will um, see a lot of Suboxone, uh, which is a combination of buprenorphine and naloxone. And, And those are what are called Schedule II medicines so they basically can be prescribed by more doctors who have been trained and certified and gotten sort of a waiver to prescribe those to to treat opioid uh, use disorder.
0: So uh, okay so so we would use what would be the correct uh, would methadone and suboxone be correct uh, to use when describing these.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean those those are definitely the more common medications given to pregnant women that have opioid use disorders and kind of the difference is that methadone results in heroin-like effects, but it has a really long half-life, right? So it typically prevents withdrawal symptoms if you're receiving a daily dose. So that's, that's the advantage of methadone over, you know, use of shorter acting uh, opioids. And what's been great about the buprenorphine products is that it can prevent withdrawal symptoms, but doesn't, produce as much of a high or sort of euphoric effects. And 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 so the first one that was released was buprenorphine by itself, which is the subutex, kind of a dissolving medicine. But, you know, some f- folks figured out ways to abuse subutex um, variously. And so they developed suboxone, which combines the buprenorphine with naloxone to sort of deter abuse. And what's cool about naloxone is it sort of of blocks the effects of the opi- uh, the opioids um, which prevents its misuse um to get high basically and so that's why you'll you'll see a lot of suboxone being used uh, over subutex
0: well i think you may have answered it but how is how does how do either of these medications help with uh, addiction it sounds like that in some well let me just ask it how are they helping why are they prescribed as a treatment for addiction?
1: Right. What we want is sort of a steadier maintenance therapy rather than sort of a cycle of looking for an illicit drug and and having the euphoric effects are high and then having the withdrawal symptoms. Um, that's not ideal if for the mother, but it's also really not ideal for the developing fetus. And so particularly when it comes to pregnancy, there've been studies that show better pregnancy outcomes if you use one of these um, treatment approaches. And the goal is to prevent withdrawal symptoms, uh, prevent cravings, um, ideally kind of lower the motivation to, to look for you know, illicit, you know, versions of these. And um, they they do it by having a longer half-life in the case of the methadone or with the buprenorphine. It's only sort of a partial, it only kind of partially matches the opioid receptors. So it kind of, you know, prevents some of the withdrawal symptoms, but it also doesn't give you as much of a high.
0: So methadone will also give you something of the high that you would be getting off of one of the opioids.
1: Yes, but milder, yeah.
0: Okay, but milder. All right. So let's talk now about some of the short and then as well as long-term impacts of infants who are exposed to any of the opioids in pregnancy. Right. And then we'll move on to talking right. about the differences we might see when they're using one of the treatment medications.
1: Yeah. And you think it kind of long, long-term long-term impacts? Or... Let's start
0: with short and then we're going to talk about long. Okay, let's yeah. Uh, let's, yeah. Let's start yeah. with short-term impacts for an infant exposed to any of the opioids. Yeah.
1: Right. So the biggest short term, well, I mean, there's pregnancy impacts, um, uh, like right? What? So, uh, particularly with the illicit use of these medications, um, we can see impacts on fetal growth. We can see a higher risk of prematurity. So, there can be some, some, some kind of pregnancy impacts. When it comes to the short term, after kids are born, the main thing we're thinking about is the neonatal abstinence syndrome. Or sometimes called neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, or sort of NALS, and that one's kind of specific to the opioids that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And neonatal abstinence syndrome is kind of generally speaking withdrawing from substances, and those substances are usually opioids, right? That's the one that's got the you know much much highest risk of having a neonatal abstinence syndrome. It's a little controversial about other substances that m- might also lead to withdrawal symptoms, but that's that's the main short term issue.
0: So the short term issue is is. The baby could be born premature, or, or obviously probably an increase in mis- miscarriage rates, but um, prematurity and small birth weight. All right, okay, and right. then after birth, neonatal abstinence syndrome, which is primarily right. uh, meaning that the baby will be born dependent and will have to will generally go through some form of withdrawal, and we'll, we'll swing back and talk about that in a minute. Now, let's talk about some of the long term impacts because there's been a lot of interesting sure. research on that, on exposure prenatally to opioids.
1: Right. And here's what's generally really challenging about this topic. And this is going to apply to any substance that we talk about, right? These studies are really hard to do in a way that controls for all of the other things that go into the mix, right? Mm -hmm. It's very rare to have a pregnancy where kids were only exposed to one substance, right? So polysubstance exposure is so common and, and it's really difficult for us to tease those out. The use of substances during pregnancy carries other risks, right? Poor prenatal care, malnutrition, maternal mental health influences, other things that are going to impact the pregnancy. The um, impacts of these substances on fetal growth or prematurity, well, being born small and premature has its own risks, Mm -hmm. right? And then, of course, after you're born, all the sort of childhood experiences and caregiving experiences and life experiences that you're going to have if you have parents with substance use uh, disorders, you know, you, you know, are in a lot of those situations, you know, at a disadvantage in terms of childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. And those researchers have tried really hard, right? And they do their best to control for those things. Sometimes they'll look at twin studies, sometimes they'll look at foster care and adoption studies, which is really relevant to to what we're uh, thinking about here. Um, But but it's tough, right? And so Mm -hmm. for most of these substances, there's a lot of, I don't really know, you know, we see signs of this, but other, Studies disagree sort of stuff. So that's like the, my usual big caveat about this, this topic, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's yeah. tough. Um, that's said, um, Having said that. <laughs> <laughs> the opioids, um, you know, have been linked to a variety of risks, but th- among the, the prenatal substance exposures, it's the one where there's been a lot of variability in terms of what the substance, what the different studies see, right? Some studies have shown maybe some some neurobehavioral challenges, kind of challenging behaviors, slight risk of ADHD sort of stuff, perhaps some sort of cognitive impacts in terms of somewhat lower scores on early childhood problem-solving skills and so on, and maybe lower academic achievement, maybe some higher risks of, of, of needing mental health supports in childhood. But some studies have not found the same outcomes. And what's really encouraging to me as an adoption and foster care doc is that in particular, the studies that looked at kids that were fostered or adopted at birth really have had better outcomes in that, you know, there was one study from Canada that looks at kids who are prenatally opioid exposed, and they were adopted at birth and followed out into adolescence. And really, when it comes to their cognitive abilities and their academic achievement and so on, they were doing fairly equivalently compared to kids that weren't exposed to opioids. There was a little bit higher risk of depression in that study. And it's, you know, it's not clear if that was Mm -hmm. the opioid itself or other factors, but the or the a genetic predisposition.
0: Are- yeah, it's hard to tell.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or adoptive parents understandably and probably wisely have a lower threshold to seek mental health evaluations, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, so lots of things to do that. But, but really, a number of studies have suggested protective effects of foster and adoptive care when it comes to opioids. And that maybe some of the risks with the opioids are sort of you know, influenced then by your uh, caregiving a- after you're b- born. Both, you might be at higher risk for impacts from less ideal caregiving. And also there's a protective, you know, benefit from better caregiving. So that's that's my sort of optimistic read of the literature about the opioids.
0: Mm-hmm. And, they're, and, and the, these babies have certainly been followed for a while. So it's not mm-hmm. like this is a brand new area of research. Um, the crisis right. uh, may right. be at a peak now, but it's certainly been been growing. And so they, they've been able Absolutely. to follow these children through research, at least through adolescence. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Right. And the only thing that's sort of tricky here is that they've kind of followed kids on sort of the older school, you know, versions of, of these opioids, but we don't have very long-term stuff, for example, on Suboxone or the buprenorphine type of medications. It it appears that at least in the earlier studies that to have been reliably maintained during pregnancy on something like suboxone is likely to lead to better pregnancy outcomes, maybe a lower risk of withdrawal compared to methadone and maybe better, you know, neurodevelopmental outcomes, but that, that research is younger, right? So we don't have kind of teenage outcome studies on that.
0: So let's talk about, um, so we know that, if, that it makes sense to think about somebody who is abusing opioids in the wild, so to speak, and is not being treated, that there are going to be a lot right. more variations, a lot more uh, highs, literally and figuratively, and lows, right. both. And, right. and so right. one of the thoughts being with one of the med- treatment medications, methadone or Suboxone, is that it evens Mm -hmm. things out. So in theory, you would think, okay, so the the mom as well as the fetus are not experiencing the highs and the lows. Does that hold out? Let's see, you've just mentioned Suboxone, and so there is some expectation that perhaps it will, although it is a drug that hasn't been studied as long in, in the impact of prenatal exposure. What about methadone?
1: Right you know it's been hard to draw a strong distinction between the long term impacts of prenatal methadone exposure to the uh, to the use of other opioids I, I think it's generally favorable and it's definitely standard of care in pregnancy to to prefer something like methadone compared to as as you said the sort of more unstructured unsupervised you know use of of illicit op- opioids um so i would say the literature suggests that maybe the outcomes are Maybe going to be better with, with methadone and that is it's generally preferred.
0: Does the dosage of either methadone or Suboxone have an effect on the baby and on the outcome of impact of the baby on the baby?
1: It's not. Clear that it does, and I'm not saying that it doesn't, right? But I think what's really felt to be most important by the folks that are managing those pregnancies is that the treatment of maternal substance use disorder is effective and consistent. So I would prefer the effective dose of uh, of this medicine and not worry as much about the the precise amount, at least when it comes to neonatal abstinence syndrome or the opioid withdrawal syndrome at birth. There's so many variables that go into you know, if you're going to have it and how long it lasts. And it's not entirely clear that the dose, uh, for example, of methadone dramatically influences the risk of the neonatal abstinence syndrome.
0: Interesting. All right. And between the two, I think I know the answer from what you've said before, but uh, between the two, is there a difference in neonatal abstinence syndrome if the mom was on methadone or Suboxone?
1: You know, we are, the, the the literature is kind of promising and and pushing the obese in the direction of the buprenorphine suboxone type of, type of medications away from methadone. I wouldn't say it's definitive yet, but it does seem that both the pregnancy outcomes and the and the risk of and duration of the neonatal abstinence syndrome is probably better with suboxone type medicine than methadone.
0: So a mom who is or a baby who is exposed to a treatment level of either of these drugs, but let's say methadone to start with. Will that baby still have the risk of being born dependent and going through
1: NAS? Absolutely. Yeah, no. The the rates of having uh, NAS or NOWS is 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 variable, but generally pretty high in, in in studies that look at kids exposed to any opioids in utero. And and the so the chances of having that abstinence syndrome or that withdrawal syndrome about fifty to eighty percent if there is prenatal opioid exposure. And what goes into the timing of it sort of depends on the half-life of the, the substance that you're using. And, Explain and, and that. What, so do you, if, you've,
0: what do you mean by that?
1: So if the infant was exposed to something like heroin, which has a short half-life, um, then generally withdrawal signs are going to begin within maybe 24 hours of birth. Whereas if the child's been exposed to methadone or buprenorphine, which have are longer acting, the withdrawal symptoms are delayed, right? And they might show up somewhere between 24 to 72 hours after birth, right? And, and for, for any opioid, sometimes the symptoms of withdrawal are delayed up to four or five days. So the general recommendation is that if a kid's been exposed to opioids of any kind, that you really want to have sort of a minimum hospital stay so that they can be observed for signs of withdrawal. And different nurseries will have different policies, but that minimum stay, I would say would be you know somewhere between three to five or seven days. you, you know it depends on the substance. But mm-hmm. if you know that the child was exposed to one of the longer acting ones like methadone or suboxone, really keeping them ideally at least four to five days would be would be wise
0: and because methadone has a longer half-life, does that mean that the baby will go through? withdrawal or NAS or, NA, or OWS for a longer mm-hmm. period of time?
1: Yes, generally speaking. And again, there's a lot of unpredictable variables, but yes.
0: Okay, I think there's a myth out there that if, if the mom has been on a treatment drug that the, that the baby will not be born dependent and that simply is not the case.
1: Right, right. Mm-hmm yeah they are at least are at, at risk of withdrawal symptoms and 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 ones that take a you know maybe a couple of days to show up
0: okay the great folks over at the Jockey Bing Family Foundation have again provided you with five free online courses on topics that will help you be the best parent possible to your precious child we have just uploaded five new courses and one that i particularly love is practical tips for disciplining while maintaining attachment you can find that course as well as all the others at bit.ly slash jbf adoption support i'm going to give that to you again bit.ly slash all cap jbf that stands for jockey being family so jbf cap adoption cap support so jbf capital adoption capital support hop on over there and get those free courses. They're terrific. We're going to circle back to talking about uh, how, how we sure. treat NAS or NA, NRWS. But before we do that, let's talk a little about now, like something, I'm just going to pick a couple of the more common uh, drugs that we will, that adoptive and foster parents will will know that they're baby has been exposed to. Let's talk about methamphetamines in pregnancy. What are some of the short-term? Will a baby be born dependent if the mom has been on meth in pregnancy?
1: There doesn't seem to be a classic neonatal withdrawal syndrome or neonatal abstinence syndrome, which is not to say that kids can't be born with sort of similar symptoms, but what's controversial in, in, in this field is what is withdrawing from a substance versus what's the toxic impact of a substance or what's maybe seeing the impact that that substance had on the developing brain. So I'm not sure it would be considered withdrawal symptoms, but, but, you know, kids can be, you know, more challenging, you know, in the infancy period when they've been prenatally exposed to stimulants like speed or methamphetamines.
0: And and the is that also for the same type of period of time that we talk about the impact of NAS and NOWS or is that
1: do you mean longer? I mean longer. And and what's challenging about meth, and this gets to kind of what you talked about, the opioids have been here, right? And, and meth is a you know, not brand new, but relatively newer in terms of how common its use is, especially in certain states. So our research around the sort of long-term impacts of prenatal methamphetamine exposure is not there yet, right? And, and and so we've got some studies that have followed kids up to early school age. And what those have shown is maybe some more challenging um, kind of acting out behaviors, maybe some higher levels of parenting stress as a result, sometimes more difficult to sort of manage as infants and toddlers. But we really don't have what I'm dying to have, which is data on the developmental impacts on, you know, memory, language, intelligence, Mm -hmm. academic achievement, and so on. We don't know it yet. And what's there isn't Horrible. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it's not seeming, you know, as scary perhaps as some other prenatal substances like heavy prenatal alcohol exposure, but we just, we don't have it yet. And Mm -hmm. if I had to guess as a clinician, it might end up in sort of the same category as other stimulants like cocaine, for example, where there are impacts, but probably more in the mild to moderate and less likely to be in the severe neurodevelopmental disability range, but we just don't know yet because the research isn't there yet. On mm-hmm.
0: that. Yeah, and, and there's no way to, we just have to wait and, and continue to follow those kids. That's all we can do. <laughs>
1: And fund it. You know, it's funny. I've I've reached out to this group. There's this big group called the ideal study and it was multi-center. It looked at, you know, and it was tracking kids and they were publishing lots of stuff. And then it's been, at least as far as I can tell, crickets for the past couple of years. And it was just when the kids were getting school age where you could do that testing. So I want to know, did, did that study run out of money to do this sort of expensive IQ and other testing or have they done it? And they're just like, Packaging it up to just release it to the world, like I, I I'm dying to I, know. But I uh, wish I, I could have...
0: tell you. I, I know of that study because I have also followed right. it in the past. Um, right. Yeah, darn, I don't know. And we surely didn't know. run out of that. Would be so. Oh, that'd be so frustrating. Yeah.
1: It'd be. Totally irresponsible. Yeah, no, and I, I did email one of the authors, but you know he's a busy guy. I haven't heard back, but uh, I hope to see more from them soon.
0: <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Let me know if you hear because I would love to. We'd yeah, love will, to report on it when they when it comes out. Absolutely. All right. Now let's talk about marijuana or cannabis. Uh, that's an no. interesting thing because as you point out, uh, you're in Washington state, it's legal there. It's illegal in many states. And I suspect within the coming uh, next short term, it will be illegal in even more states. And as a result, right. we are certainly right. seeing it's almost become, it's like, it's the okay drug for right. pregnant women to use. I mean, we're, we, we, preach so much about alcohol, and this one seems right, right, like right. it's not getting the same, this one meaning marijuana, it's not getting the same attention in the, right. at least in the common press from the, from dangers. Right. and so let's talk about, uh, is marijuana dangerous yeah. Yeah. Uh, in pregnancy?
1: it It appears to be, um, and and I agree with you. Yes. I mean, we know that the rates of you know prenatal THC and cannabis exposure are going up, right? with legalization mm-hmm. and also this kind of perception that it's natural, right? And this whole yeah. like health halo around CBD, treats everything. I mean, there's so much hype around um, cannabis derived products, most of it like not really supported by you know research. but it, you know, it's it's a boom industry with lots of marketing. and 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 what we know, with those same caveats I mentioned up front about how, how difficult it is to do high-quality research, we do know that with um, cannabis products that it, it, it has maybe a modest impact on fetal growth. There might be some subtle infant neurobehavioral effects, and what I mean by neurobehavioral effects is just kind of, you know what are perceived as fussy or challenging babies, right? They may not smoothly move between sleep and alert and a little hungry and you feed them and they go back, you know, more kind of jagged, you know, moves between, you know, sleep and awake and fussy and harder to console Mm -hmm. sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. So we see some subtle impacts like that. As you follow kids out to school age with prenatal cannabis exposures, there is some subtle increased risk of ADHD or delinquency type of behaviors the sort of bigger category of issues that might be the impact of cannabis is what are called the higher level executive skills deficits, right? And those executive skills are your sort of planning organization, checking your work, making the right choice. You know, they're the things that, you know, develop in our, particularly in our teens and twenties and help us learning
0: from cause and effect, adults. things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 So executive skills impacts might be a sort of Bigger area of cannabis impact. And there was a study that came out in the past year or two that's, you know, preliminary, but a little concerning because it showed a higher risk of autism spectrum disorders in kids who are prenatally exposed to cannabis versus not. And that's not definitive. That's one study, but it was sort of a safety signal that was concerning to a lot of folks. Was it a pretty large study?
0: How many uh, was it tracking a fairly large?
1: I'd have to dig it up, but I, you know, it's one of those kind of chart review studies that looked at lots of kids and looked at diagnoses of of Mm -hmm. autism. So it wasn't like following a small group of kids, but you know, so it was a larger group that way. So, Right, but you're right. People use it because they perceive that it's natural. They're sort of wanting to self-treat anxiety. They're using it for um, nausea and vomiting of pregnancy. Oh, honestly,
0: what I hear is that we look, I can't drink. It's you know, I've got to have some fun <laughs> kind of that type approach. you know i'm I'm doing right. the right thing. I'm yeah. not drinking. Uh, so, right. yeah, yeah. And, and are the impacts of marijuana different from those that you would see from tobacco? I mean both being inhaled substances. is Is there a difference? because I mean we certainly know that babies whose moms smoke tend to be smaller in birth weight. Are we seeing a right. bit, but the impact from cannabis is different.
1: Yeah, and, and good point about how you use this stuff, because how you use these products has really multiplied, right? And and on the cannabis side, there's edibles, there's vaping, there's dabbing, there's, you know, yeah. all of these things. And, and also for the tobacco products, too, there's been an explosion in vaping. And we don't have great data yet about, you know, all the stuff that's in vape juice and how that might affect the pregnancy. But you are right that in general... To tobacco and cannabis products seem seem to be different. You're right that tobacco has a bigger impact on birth weight. Tobacco can can also increase the rates of spontaneous abortions, or late fetal deaths, or prematurity. There's definitely an increased risk of SIDS, crib death, uh, with prenatal tobacco exposures. Uh, maybe with ear infections and asthma.
0: But not that. But you don't see this in marijuana exposure.
1: Uh, less so. Lesser impact on growth, uh, at least. And SIDS. SIDS, I d- don't have great data about. I'd be more worried about it with, with tobacco, though.
0: Gotcha. And okay, so then you had alluded to this, but I, I didn't think, I'm not sure I got yeah. the answer. It, it, there are so many different ways uh, to imbibe in cannabis products. Do you see a difference right. between edibles versus smoking or vaping?
1: I mean, I, not enough to confidently, I, I wouldn't recommend either. I mean, you yeah. can you can think that with Edible, you you might avoid some of the harms associated with you know burning leaf, right, and and all the other compounds that get released when you you know smoke it, but uh, yeah, but I I so so perhaps an edible would be safer, but still those yeah. impacts from even THC could be could be notable,
0: yeah, right. So it's the THC that gets in your blood regardless of whether it gets in through your stomach or uh, through your lungs, right? Okay. So does the timing of exposure in pregnancy affect the prognosis for the child, the long-term? Well, in short-term, the, the child's uh, birth weight, uh, propensity towards uh, withdrawal, NAS, NOWS. NAW, Is there a safer time for a fetus to be exposed to drugs in pregnancy?
1: That's really hard to say. Um, generally speaking, when we think about you know, how the fetus develops, those first three months are about you know, organ systems forming and cells getting to where they need to be and sort of laying the template. And Seems then the like second a big and third deal. trimesters. Yeah. yeah, big deal. Yeah, yeah First yeah. trimester is a big deal, right? So if, you, if you're talking about something that has, that's a teratogen like alcohol, right? That has the ability to damage those structures as they're being formed, then yes, the first trimester is the riskiest period for something like alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, The second and third trimester being more about growth um, and, you know, further development and migration and stuff, but there's a lot of, you know, uh, growing that happens there. You know, the other kind of question is for some of these substances, well, when do the receptors even develop in the fetal brain to be impacted by these things? So I Mm -hmm. I think it depends on whether you're talking about a substance that's a teratogen, causes birth defects versus something that can have maybe more subtle impacts on the developing nervous system. So for alcohol, I'd said first trimester is riskiest, second and third trimester, not good either, uh, right? But, But with the other substances, I would say that particularly when we're talking about the opioids, you know, that as the closer you get to delivery, right, the higher the chances are you're gonna have of withdrawal symptoms, right? If there'd been some opioid use in second trimester, but none during third, and of course the question is, how reliably do you know that, right? But if if there really was no opioids recently before delivery, then your risk of the withdrawal symptoms goes down a lot.
0: Yeah, but in some way, isn't the, wouldn't the fetus also then, maybe this is a dumb question, but it seems like the fetus would still be withdrawing, you just wouldn't see it because it would be in utero. I mean, it would. Does that make sense? I mean, there's still the the fetus is yeah. coming off of having been, you know, withdrawal is having right. is the with, with is it. the removal of a substance that your body has become dependent upon. Right. So, wouldn't the baby right. still be experiencing it, but just you don't happen to notice it?
1: Maybe. And 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 the reason I'm complicating it is this: there's this, there's <laughs> this kind of odd fact when it comes to neonatal abstinence syndrome, which is that preemies. Are at lower risk of uh, neonatal neo- abstinence syndrome compared to term infants. So the 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 more preemie they are, the lower the at least the symptom severities are. What we don't know is 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 that because our symptom scales were developed for term infants, and it's happening for the preemies, it just looks different, or we're not seeing it, right? So that's possible.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: But also it may be that the receptors in the brain, you know, aren't as de- sensitive. Maybe, you know, they have less fat. So there's less fat deposition of the substance. Maybe they haven't been exposed as long, of course, you know, if you come out early versus term. So we're not sure why preemies have lower rates of NAS, but they do. So so that kind of complicates the knowing how impactful with, with you know, withdrawal in the you know, second or early third trimester would be for the fetus.
0: That's fascinating. Okay, so many parents believe that if in fact it seems to be almost universal belief when people we talk with that that if the if the child is not born dependent or does not have drugs in their system, is not going through NAS or NAWS, that the mm-hmm. long-term prognosis is better, that they will have fewer impacts from the drug exposure. Is this true? I,
1: I'm honestly I'm not sure that it is. I mean, there are you can you can think of you know the symptoms of 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 the you know, neonatal syndrome as being distre- distressing and that's kind of potentially impactful for the newborn, right? And 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 you know, what I'd say to that is that because of the explosion in the rates of this, you know, nursery staff generally these days are fairly sensitive to what to look for. Most nurseries have protocols in place where they're monitoring for those symptoms. So I think if we're treating NAS or NALS appropriately, you know, we'll talk about that, that I I think hopefully we could mitigate some of those impacts on on the baby. So I, I think I would say that I'm not necessarily reassured by the absence of you neonatal know, abstinence syndrome if we know that there was significant pregnancy substance exposure just earlier.
0: See, it seems to me all it means is that the baby was not exposed within the month or so prior to birth. And that doesn't say anything about the degree of exposure before then. Right. Yeah. So it it seems right. like it's all it's telling you is that right. for whatever reason in the last month or so, the mom was not using. Yeah. Or was had reduced her Yeah, use.
1: you bet.
0: And it could simply be yeah. she was in jail, or she uh, was in a treatment program, or something. And it doesn't tell you anything right. before right. that. Yeah. So how serious? It's it's hard to witness a child going through withdrawal NAS a S right. uh, But how serious is it for the child? I
1: mean, it, it if it's especially if it's if it's not recognized as such. You know, can be serious. I mean, the the symptoms, which we'll talk about in a in a minute, can be can be quite significant for the baby, and and there can be some other neurological things that go along with it. Some studies have suggested you can see seizures, maybe in about two to ten percent of kids who are having neonatal syndrome. If you put EEGs, you know, looking at brain electrical activity on, on babies, about 30% have EEG changes, mm-hmm. right? The other thing that's serious about it is how long it can last, right? And it can last kind of days to weeks, depending on, again, the half-life of the, the opioid that was being used and also mm-hmm. how it's um, being managed and how, how well it's being managed by the nursery staff.
0: Well, you know, and this seems it's easy to say, well, this is not a big impact, but it is hard to parent a child going through this. It's And and that puts additional stress on parents. And so that can impact a baby with parents who are getting no sleep at all and are not able to be able to comfort that, that inability to be able to help your child calm and, and soothe uh, Undermines your confidence, especially if you don't know the reason that you're not being successful. So all of that has an impact.
1: Yes, and that's why a lot of the sort of nursery approaches here do involve kind of caregiver education and kind of mm-hmm. you know teach, t- teaching how to recognize you know the symptoms and how to respond in a sensitive and kind of ideally match to that baby and their kind of sensory needs. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so, so so teaching is a big big part of that.
0: So how do we treat children, uh, not children, right. but infants who right. are experiencing NAS or nows?
1: Right. You know, the f- first big push is recognition, right? So when it comes to the symptoms of neonatal abstinence syndrome, there's a couple of categories um, that are being looked at, right, And and so, We can see kids with sleep and wake difficulties, you know, difficulty sleeping for longer than an hour, sort of bouncing in and out of sleep. They can have motor or muscle tone differences, right? So they can be stiffer. They can have very kind of prominent startle and other kind of infant primitive reflexes. They can have tremors. And sometimes the tremors can be bad enough that the skin kind of gets raw and they have to use, you know, diaper and other barrier to protect the skin from the tremors. There can be irritability and a high-pitched cry and just difficulty consoling the infant within a certain amount of time. Feeding difficulties like coordinating, sucking, and swallowing, and being having some oral sensitivities are common. And then some GI symptoms like gassiness or vomiting or loose stools are, are common. And the other thing that the nursery staff would be looking for is what's called autonomic dysfunction. And that's like sweating or having trouble keeping your temperature in range or sneezing or nasal stuffiness or yawning or these other signs. So these symptoms have scoring systems that have been developed that can, can sort of monitor them and put a number to them and help the, the, the team make decisions about, you know, what level of care does this kid need?
0: hmm So what are the treatment options there? Yeah. At that point.
1: Right. So being aware, monitoring, tracking the symptoms, and then, you know, depending on the level of the symptoms, generally the preferences for non-medication or non-pharmacological care, right? And, and those are individualized for the baby and what their sensitivities seem to be, but the general things that seem to help are sort of reducing stimulation overall right? So we try to, you know, being in the hospital is terrible when it comes to interruptions and beeps and bloops and getting checked and having your temperature checked and changing your diaper, right? If you've been in the hospital, you know, it's the least restful place, you know, there is, right? Mm -hmm. So we try to cluster infant care, Right. And assessments around feeding times where they're already sort of awake and then really let them have some uninterrupted uh time. Right. We try to keep kids off monitors that beep <laughs> and alarm, unless you know there are if there are morphine therapy, you know, you have to kind of monitor their oxygen and heart, you know, heart rate levels. But otherwise, try and get them off monitors if it's safe to do so, right? Turn down the lights, reduce stimulation, have them be in a quieter room you know, uh, because of the stiffness and the motor movements and the tremors, um, some swaddling uh, techniques and some rocking techniques um, to help kids kind of the sensory issues there. And then, of course, the big push is to involve caregivers in in a healthy sort of way, right? And that, you know, whether it's the birth parents or the adoptive parents, really, we want rooming in, right? It, it, it don't, Put the kid in the special care nursery or the newborn ICU unless they need that level of monitoring, right? Have them in in a quieter, calmer room with the parents, teaching those parents about those ways to not overstimulate the kid, to swaddle and rock them, Uh, the use of skin-to-skin care, the use of breastfeeding if it's available and safe to do so, Um, those sorts of kind of more parent dyad related um, measures are, 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 are useful. So that's kind of the spectrum of non-medication treatments.
0: Uh, and so how many, uh, what percentage of children have to go on medication?
1: You know, that depends on the the center and I'd, 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 I'd have to look it up, but what, what, what it is is you start with the sort of non-pharmacological measures. And then if, if, if the scores are either so high to begin with, or they're not responding to the non-pharmacological measures, some centers will do at least a one-time morphine dose to see if it helps. So, mm-hmm. so sort of do a trial of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's a, s- a substantial improvement, or if that child really has high enough symptoms, um, then yeah, generally um, centers will use uh, liquid morphine and do a sort of tapering approach where they're adjusting the dose of the medicine in response to the to the symptoms.
0: Mm-hmm. So they start with morphine. And how is the morphine administered? Right.
1: Orally, uh, Oral. typically, okay. as a liquid, yeah.
0: So they would be giving, it and they would be gradually reducing it, depending, right. on how, so that the baby suffers less during this period of time.
1: Exactly, yeah. And you were asking about, you know, who needed morphine. You know, there's a local. Um, a couple of local hospitals that just did an initiative that uh, kind of quality improvement project that really worked on training uh, on all those non pharmacological methods. And they also shifted from an old scoring system called the Finnegan scoring system to something called the eat sleep console protocol, which is sort of simpler and honestly more caregiver friendly, right? Because we want caregivers to be aware of these. And so it's really kind of simplifies into how well is this child eating can they sleep more than an hour? And can you console them within a certain amount of time, like 10 minutes or so, right? And you get a, mm-hmm. it's a simpler scoring system. And so when they did this whole training and they switched to the ESC protocol, they found that the average length of hospital stay went down from nine to six days. And the mm-hmm. morphine use for these local hospitals went from 57% to 23%, right? So they, they cut that Good. more than in half. Yeah. Um. So that's an example of what, what some of those yeah. interventions can do and roughly what the morphine use is.
0: Well, a, a practical question we often will get is families that are adopting out of state and they're concerned about how soon they're gonna be able to travel home with their baby if she has been born dependent and is going through withdrawal. So what 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 can we advise those parents of knowing first of all that that they can't know going in because they don't know how their baby is going to be. So they won't know going in, but what are some of the information you can give them that would help give them an idea?
1: Right. I mean definitely pack for a longer stay, right? Some some of the older, you know, uh literature around this dis, you know discusses hospital stays of up to several weeks, right? And and that's not as commonly how it's done again with those better approaches, you can get the hospital stay down to maybe under a week. Um, generally, kids are not gonna go to adoptive parents care still on morphine, right? We wanna get them off of the substances. For kids that need a longer taper, sometimes kids will get discharged from the hospital to sort of an interim care center where it's like a special care nursery with um, super savvy staff who, who deal with the, the sort of more prolonged neonatal abstinence syndrome. So I do have some babies that go from hospital to interim care to adoptive parents. Um, But yeah, I mean, pack for days to a few weeks Mm -hmm. and ideally try to make plans ahead of time with the care team and the birth parent, you know, through the adoption agency about what's going to be allowed as far as rooming in with the baby and, you know, try to set up a way that the adoptive parents can really be in the hospital as much as possible, in room with the baby as much as possible, getting teaches from the nursing and staff as much as possible.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, because we know that that's one of the big parts of the non-med, you know, non-medication care is caregiver training, rooming mm-hmm. in, skin to skin, and, and so on.
0: So, how long does withdrawal in an infant born dependent last?
1: Um, again, you know, days days to a few weeks is 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 how I think of it.
0: Okay. So, if yeah. a baby tests positive, or or we see that the baby is going through withdrawal, is it possible to determine what drug the baby was born exposed to? Is there a blood test that could be run? I mean, assuming that you're not able to get the information.
1: Yeah, it depends. So drug testing is tough, right? Because every lab has their own panel of tests, right? So your standard opioid screening tests are typically going to be detecting morphine, which is a metabolite of heroin, codeine, and all the other sort of natural opioids. But the synthetics, right? Fentanyl, methadone, uh, et cetera, you need specific tests for. So I mean, the the drug testing companies are kind of savvy to the fact that now there's this broader range of opioids. So what you learn about what opioid it is depends on, you know, how many subtests that the the, the testing company tends to do, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And you're right that there's ways to test it, right? There's a maternal urine uh, drug screen. There's a infant urine drug screen. There's baby's first poop, meconium, which is a way to get back earlier into pregnancy. There's... uh, umbilical blood, there's umbilical cord tissue, which is sort of a newer approach to testing for prenatal substances. And they all have their strengths and weaknesses, and it's a little bit Wild West in that some of these aren't, you know, necessarily super FDA approved yet. They're sort of newer, you know, testing Mm -hmm. protocols.
0: One of our wonderful partners is Spitz Chapin. They are a licensed and accredited nonprofit organization in the New York City metro area that has been offering adoption services for more than 100 years. Their international adoption programs focus on finding permanent, loving families for children in need of adoption in South Africa, Colombia, and Bulgaria. Spitz Chapin is dedicated to guiding parents with lifelong support and education, and they advocate for all types of families who want to become parents, including married couples, unmarried couples, LGBTQ parents, single moms, and single men. Go to spitz-chapin.org to find out more. So, how do you foster attachment while a baby is suffering through withdrawal?
1: that's where those non-pharmacological measures come in. So rooming in skin to skin, being aware of those sensory over and under sensitivities. And so really being responsive as, as, you know, responsive in care, Um, erring on the side of lower stimulation. And it's natural as a parent, when your baby's fussing or having a hard time to sort of do more, sort of be louder, get more eye contact going on to sort of, and sometimes that level of involvement is overstimulating. And so Mm -hmm. your contact with that child, at least during these sort of withdrawing stages, you might want to do touch, only, or the soft sound of your voice only, or gentle eye contact if that's not overwhelming to the kid. And and that's where the very experienced and excellent nurses that help manage, you know, withdrawal symptoms can be really good at kind of helping parents troubleshoot and teaching them effective swaddles and rocking techniques and so on. There are some studies that suggest improved outcomes with neonatal abstinence syndrome with with, uh, breastfeeding, which, you know, isn't going to be an option for most of our adoptive parents, unless they've done a, a sort of adoptive parent um, milk stimulation protocol, which isn't very many parents in my experience. There are some ways if adoptive mothers are interested of doing what's called side, side stream supplementation, which is w- where you put formula or donor breast milk in a little syringe that kind of goes to a tube at their nipple. So you can have the experience mm-hmm. of nursing, but what's going in is, is, is um, formula or, or donor milk
0: it donor milk better than formula so so is it the is it the is it the breast milk that is helping or is it the the act of the skin to skin touching with the the breast and the baby
1: is both it's both and the question of donor milk is a tough one i feel like we've done a terrible job in this country of having you know well-run donor milk systems right where there is sort of protocols around collecting it, around testing it for substances and infectious diseases and so on. And so sort of what's out there now for for donor milk is kind of a trust-based system, right? You have to trust who you're getting it from, that they've collected it in a, in a proper fashion, that they haven't been using substances, that they don't have any infectious diseases and so on. So I think people have very varying levels of com- kind of comfort with donor breast milk. And so I am fine as a pediatrician if, if that's not an option or adoptive parents don't choose to use donor milk. I think Formula does a pretty great job at, at helping kids feed and grow.
0: Okay. So you have alluded earlier to talking about alcohol, and we know that uh, we have many, many resources and courses on the impact of alcohol and uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. So we know it's a major teratogen. But one of the things is that because we have stressed so much that drinking in pregnancy is is bad and wrong. We often don't get an honest report because there's a shame factor that you don't want to admit. So it's hard to know sometimes. But so my question is how common in your experience is it for women who use drugs during their pregnancy to also drink excessively during their pregnancy, a poly exposure type scenario?
1: it's it's very common and and unfortunately i don't have perfect statistics to share with you but but i would say that in my just experience as a, a kind of adoption and foster care doc that that you know if there are substances i will generally assume that there are more than the identified substance and that you know things especially like alcohol and tobacco maybe cannabis that are easier to get are probably in the mix you'll sometimes hear this sort of Myth that if opioids are someone's substance of choice, that that means they don't drink, and 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 I mm-hmm. I I I haven't been able to find the evidence for that. I mean, I think that 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 the risk may be lower if opioids are your kind of true substance of choice, but I mean, the studies I've seen, you know, there's still substantial, you know, co-occurring alcohol, you know, in, in those situations. So I wouldn't take that as a, as reliable
0: yeah i you do hear that that you hear that if somebody's if if the high they seek is coming from an opioid that alcohol's not right. going to get them there, so it's not ten, doesn't whether they drink yes but they they it's it's more social not to the extreme, but you're saying you that's not what you see
1: right and and, th- and and that may be true I just you know i don't I don't have great evidence to support yeah
0: I've often wondered that it's it's like one of those wives tale that we hear the sayings that we hear, mm-hmm. but it's hard to know if it's yeah. wishful thinking right. One of the things that we hear a lot is that early intervention is key and that a baby's brain can be rewired during the first couple of years with the right Right. therapy, not being raised in a a home where substance abuse is a problem, things like that. Have you seen evidence of that? And what exactly, if so, what exactly does that therapy entail?
1: Generally speaking, yes, kind of optimal parenting, you know, especially in early years. Um, seems to lower, mitigate some of the some of the impacts of prenatal substance exposures. Certainly, those first three years or first five years are a critical time for brain growth, development, forming new connections, and 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 so on. And so, absolutely, we want to intervene early, right? And so, one of the main ways to do that is with what are called birth to three um, programs, which are state and federally supported programs that are sort of regionally based right so you, there'll be there'll be a birth to three center for your for where you live right mm-hmm. you can be referred by your pediatrician or social worker but honestly you can self-refer to those centers and they'll do a screen and you can get in based on having a, a delay but also a lot of them will let you in based on a risk factor like prenatal substance exposure right so birth to three services are fantastic and um, don't result in a lot of out-of-pocket expenses because there's state support for that. After age three, you can call up your school district and what's called their child find line, and you can arrange for evaluations and testing if you have developmental or behavioral concerns. Like a lot of children's hospital centers will have what are called high-risk infant follow-up clinics. Again, if kids are born premature, but also if they were exposed prenatally to substances, they might be able to get into this sort of monitoring clinic that that follows kids up until school age periodically. And, And so those sort of monitoring intervention programs are fantastic.
0: Can parents request if they know that they exist or they might exist, can they request that their child be enrolled their baby
1: absolutely right and and the 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 what gets you qualified for services is going to vary based on your state and the and the centers, but absolutely prenatal substance exposure should be something that may open the door to some of these services, and if it's not, but you have behavioral developmental concerns that, that that'll that probably get you through the door as well. And so it
0: doesn't have to be at the hospital where the infant is born. It could be Absolutely if you not. go back to your state, the baby's born in another state, you go back to your state, the local larger hospitals near you may well have such a program. Right. Okay. So you right, would have to call. Right. And find and absolutely.
1: You know, you want to discuss it with your pediatrician. There's, I think there's stigma for adoptive parents too, about not wanting their child to be labeled as a child that was prenatal exposed to substances and they don't want schools to see it and so on. And I, I, I understand that, but that prenatal exposure is what gets you through the door, right. Or, or what in unlocks some of these services. And so I don't think it's helpful to hide it. Um, I, I really think it's, it's, it's an important part of that, uh, you know, that child's kind of risk you know whole whole package of risk and resilience factors and and it's Mm -hmm. it's important to to share
0: well and sometimes honestly adoptive and foster parents have less stigma about identifying it because it doesn't reflect on them therefore there is less hesitancy on the other hand they are aware that just about anything that goes in your child's file will follow them through their school years and so there's a concern there so you're correct um, you know, it, yeah. there are similarities between the impact of prenatal drug exposure and the impact of early life trauma and, and how it affects children through learning and behavior and things such as that. When a child has both of those challenges, is it possible to tell the difference on what is causing the specific problem? Is it is it because a child was prenatally exposed or is it because the child experienced Trauma and then was removed from their home, you know, at the age of 18 months. Do we know that? Is it how do we tell? And is a treatment, and does it doesn't really matter because the treatment is it different.
1: Oh boy, that is such a good question. And I really don't think we are able to really disentangle those, right? Because, you know, you can even imagine, you know, the things that go along with prenatal substance exposures can involve a certain amount of what's considered kind of trauma during pregnancy. Sure, well, I, prenatal,
0: prenatal exposure right? is trauma. I know yeah. I'm, right. that, to me, it's right. like, that is a form of trauma, but I did mean other forms of trauma, right. you know. Yeah, the, no, and, the then, violence, and then if you're and born, like you
1: know, absolutely. Those things, unfortunately, tend to go together. There's that synergy between parents using substances and neglect or, 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 or other mm-hmm. adverse childhood experiences. And yes, I mean, the rates of kids entering the foster care system because of parental substance use disorders is rising, you know, significantly. So, so they're really difficult to disentangle because we're honestly still kind of struggling to arrive at, you know, a consensus definition of what is developmental trauma disorder or complex trauma, right? We tried to get it into the DSM-5, you know, the manual for psychologists and psychiatrists and didn't really succeed with the last edition, right? So, I, I you know, and because these sort of symptoms in terms of behaviors um, and also impacts on learning and cognition, because you can get those from trauma, they overlap so much that yeah, I don't feel as a clinician that I can tease them apart. And the I, I think you since you need to individualize the approaches to you know that child's profile of strengths and weaknesses, I think with my patients, I'm generally trying to, to, to individualize their developmental supports, right? To their unique profile, of strengths and weaknesses. And then, yeah, when it comes to therapy, I definitely want trauma-informed and, you know, attachment-informed, you know, therapies that, that um, you know, if there is a history of, of trauma, yeah, absolutely, that we're trying to do evidence-based therapies there, too. That's a great okay. question.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, as you point out, so many of our kids have both. So it's, yeah. So this is a question we get very often. Are children who are exposed prenatally at greater risk for drug abuse as teens and adults if they were adopted and not raised in an environment that exposed them to drug use?
1: The answer is, is vaguely yes. There, there appears to be an interaction between maybe some of the genetic vulnerabilities that come with having birth parents that were you know had substance use disorders, as well as the being exposed to it in utero sort of developing a taste for it, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but mm-hmm. those risks appear to interact with each other. And, and, and so I generally do think of kids who are exposed prenatally as being an increased personal risk for substance use disorders later, and so I, what I'm trying to do with my adoptive families is to, you know, have developmentally appropriate education about the risks of su- substance use, you know, starting at an early age, and have adoptive parents be kind of mindful about, you know, the modeling that they do around use of substances in the home and so on. Um, and it's definitely not guaranteed that that child is going to have an issue, but I do think mm-hmm. of them as at higher risk.
0: At a higher risk. Uh, the good news is that if yeah. we know our children are at higher risk we could start educating early and uh, on right. that risk and so that is it's you know it's it's not like they they uh, that you aren't that at a very early age you can be talking about the fact that you are at a higher risk
1: right right and with younger kids, sometimes we use the sort of allergic to alcohol or allergic to substances, which is an oversub- not exact, exactly how it works, but it makes sense to younger school age kids. Sure. They've all got classmates with allergies to things. And yeah. then when they go older, then yeah, they they can explore their kind of birth family history a little bit more and understand just the, the complexity of risk a little bit better. But.
0: So my last question is that, and this is not so much drug uh, related specifically, but we know that uh, moms who... Use injectable drugs, uh, legal or illegal, but particularly if they're it's, it's illegal, are at higher risk for certain bloodborne diseases such as Hep B and hep C, Hepatitis B and Hepatitis C. Is that true? And so, do are our children whose moms were injecting their drugs of choice are they are, are the moms at higher risk for Hep uh, Hepatitis B or C? And if so, what are the odds that the baby will be at risk?
1: Yeah. So yes, they are at higher risk to have you know hepatitis B or C or HIV or those other kind of um, infections that are at higher risk with IV uh-huh. drug use. But the good news is, is that the risk to the baby is actually still quite low, right? The OBs are generally gonna be testing for those things in the birth mothers. And so if, for example, with hepatitis B, if we know that the birth mother has it or we don't know that she doesn't has it, like you know showed up and hadn't had testing, then generally we're gonna give that baby their first hepatitis B vaccine, very promptly, as well as something called Im- immune globulin, which also lowers the risk of getting it. And in some studies, you can knock the risk down of getting hepatitis B to as low as one percent if you get right on both of those uh, treatments in the in the newborn period.
0: And this is for a mom when the mom absolutely has it. So this is one percent. Yeah, when mom has it. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Okay.
1: Yeah. And then with hepatitis C, we don't have that those we don't have a vaccine, we don't have the immune globulin. But still, the risks of getting hepatitis C for the baby are about five percent or so, unless the birth mother is co-infected with HIV, and they're the risk might be about ten percent or so.
0: So it's it's relatively so still low. low. Yeah, still yeah. low. Okay, yeah. which is, which is good. Which is good. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Julian Davies. This has been very helpful and I think will be very uh, informative to, for so many parents. So thank you so much for talking with us today about opiates, opioids, methadone, suboxone, and uh, prenatal exposure to those. Let me remind everyone that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Also, keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your medical professional. Hey, I have a favor to ask. Please pop over to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast app you are using and give us a rating. Ratings are how people find us. It is how we get increased listenership. That is really important to us and our mission. And uh, we would really appreciate it. It doesn't take very long and the appreciation is huge. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today and I will see you next week.